Hi everyone, and welcome to Remaking Tomorrow, a series of conversations about the future of teaching and learning. I'm Ryan Radzeski, here with Greg Baer. We're the co-authors of When You Wonder, You're Learning, Mr. Rogers' Enduring Lessons for Raising Creative, Curious, Caring Kids. This is a podcast powered by Remake Learning, a network that ignites engaging, relevant, and equitable learning in support of young people navigating rapid social and technological change. On today's episode, we're talking with Karen Pittman, co-founder of the Forum for Youth Investment. Karen served as the Forum's president and CEO from 1998 to 2021. She's now a partner with KP Catalyst. Karen Pittman, welcome to Remaking Tomorrow. Thanks so much. I'm glad to be here. So Karen, take us back to some earlier years, if you might. There was a time when you spent your summers working as a counselor at a camp that changed the course of your life. What was that camp like and why did it end up being such an important place? That's a great place to start, um, taking me back 50 years, um, actually a little bit more than 50 years, to when I was at Oberlin College and was looking for a summer job uh, and took a job as a counselor at an educational camp for teenagers that was started by David Weikert and his wife. And David Weikert is the person who did the Perry Preschools Project. He started the High School Educational Research Foundation and really sort of issued in the idea that early learning and quality learning through life can really put all young people on a trajectory. So I was delighted to take a job. Um, I'd never even been to camp, but I ended up being a camp counselor at an eight-week residential camp for teens. And these teens came from all over the country and all over the world, basically to learn for a summer. And our job as counselors, we weren't that much older than the teens, was to make learning exciting. We weren't dumbing down learning, we were just making learning exciting. I actually taught science and music but what I learned there was that when you really put the responsibility for creating learning experiences on the shoulder of the adults, in this case, the young adults, and you have the absolute expectation that if you do it right, young people will engage and learn, that it works. It's just magic. It was also a very intentional community in which learning really did happen everywhere. We were as intentional about how we put young people together into rooms, how we re- rearranged tables, how we made work assignments, all these were considered learning experiences and the social and emotional connections that young people needed to make were as important as the learning. And so we were meeting every day to really discuss how learning was happening with each young person, and what we could do to move it forward. At the end of that first year, I was in awe and I had gone off to Oberlin to be a math teacher. And after doing that for three or four years in the summers, I realized when I went to do student teaching that this was not how learning was happening in schools. And so that set me on a journey to figure out how to get this kind of learner-centered engagement and trust that young people are excited about learning if we get it right, and that people without a lot of training can get it right if they have the right approach. And that path has taken you some really interesting places, Karen. From that camp, you dedicated your career to youth development. You worked for the Urban Institute, the Children's Defense Fund, the Clinton administration, and others. After all of that, can you tell us a little bit about what inspired you to co-found the Forum for Youth Investment? What were the gaps you were trying to fill and what did you hope the forum would accomplish? I'm an ideas person, but I like to be in places where the ideas that I can play with can move to impact. So I went away from academia pretty early. I was more interested in being in an environment in which I could get these ideas started and moving than in building an organization. So after 40 plus years of running centers or initiatives and things inside of other people's organizations, Rita Irby and I, and Rita's the co-founder of the forum, set up the Forum for Youth Investment as an independent organization. And we did that, frankly, for practical reasons. 
we were getting a big grant and we needed to do it in a way that gave us the independence to do this work. So what we were doing had gotten too big to live inside of the current organization we were housed in. And so we set off on our own. But the intent was really not to build an organization. It was to build a flexible space where ideas could be moved into action. And you're someone who is known as making things happen. You bring ideas into being, and you led the forum for 23 years. So here's an unfair question, because there are hundreds of answers to this. But what are some of the things of which you're most proud when you think about the work of the forum? Wow, there are a lot. First, in general, I think I'm most proud of the fact that the forum, through all of our years, and I hope it continues with the new CEO, the forum stayed true to the basic ideas about youth development and the power of the youth development approach, while just being extremely entrepreneurial and opportunistic in looking for where those ideas could take root. And the other thing that we did that I'm very proud of is we were as humble as we could be in doing that work. So whether we were partnering with other organizations, we were getting things started and then letting them go, or we were picking up things that other people started and bringing them in. All of those are things that we did. So I think it's interesting as a CEO of a nonprofit, I probably had more partnerships, joint ventures, mergers, acquisitions, sales, all these things happened because we were really trying to find the best home for moving ideas forward. And that's what I'm proud of. Probably if I had to pick one, it would be starting the Weikert Center for Youth Program Quality. Um, That really brought the legacy that I started with back when I was a teen in college, all the way through into the reality right now, into the present, that you could create quality learning environments for young people. And that if you wanna get any outcomes for young people, social, emotional, academic, vocational, et cetera, you have to take responsibility for building the quality environment. We knew then and we know a whole lot more now about what quality learning environments look like. So we really built what was called the Quest model. Quality gets you engagement. Engagement gets you skills. And skills, when applied, transfer into other outcomes, whatever you want. And we took that model and put it into practice, about 150 networks across the country. So practically, that's one of the things that I'm excited about and proud of. But there are, as you said, many, many others. Karen, one of the things that strikes us about your work has been your consistent emphasis on quality relationships. So on one hand, we all know relationships are important. But on the other, the word relationships can mean lots of different things. And you've said that developmental relationships mean more than just caring. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Like when you think about the relationships that are essential to children's success, what are the components of those relationships? Relationships are at the center. But we do dumb down the power of relationships when we think just give kids caring adults. They need caring adults who are competent, who are connected, who are compassionate. All of those have to be there in order for us to really leverage the relationship that's built starting through caring and respect up into a relationship that's empowering. The Search Institute has done this extremely well. They talk about developmental relationships and they really sort of have pulled out these ideas that developmental relationships start with caring but move forward. And that the thing that's hardest for us to do often as adults is get to the point where we're empowering young people through that relationship to take off on their own. Karen, you said this a moment ago, that we sometimes think of relationships as something that come into being without much thought. Spend enough time with students and eventually you'll develop a relationship. So how can adults, caring adults like teachers and parents and neighbors, those camp counselors, take what we've learned from science and the science of learning to build relationships more intentionally and more deliberately? 
we can start by understanding that relationships are more than just being together with young people in the same place. Relationships really, if they're done well, lead to a sense of safety and belonging. So the first thing we have to do is to check to make sure that, especially when we're working in groups, and you have a group of diverse young people, that all young people have developed sufficient relationships with the adults and the peers that they feel safe and that they feel that they belong in this group. And if you do have a group that is diverse, you want to make sure that they have a sense of not just individual belonging, but collective belonging. And we fool ourselves sometimes when we think everything is going well. But when you come into some of these groups and you parse out how young people are feeling, you find that even in advisories, which are set up to be relationship forward entities, that young people are taking time to get to know young people. If that environment isn't set up correctly, the young people who are often more marginalized still don't feel safe enough to share their full selves. So relationships are the doorway into helping young people feel that they're safe in their belonging. If that's the case, then they have an opportunity to bring themselves fully present into whatever the learning opportunity that you're offering them. If they don't feel safe in belonging, they'll be there, they'll participate minimally, but they won't put their full selves into it, and then they won't get all the skill growth that you want to get out of those opportunities. This is Greg Bear along with Ryan Rudzeski. We're talking with Karen Pittman, co-founder and past president of the Forum for Youth Investment. The author of several books and dozens of articles about youth development, she's also a speaker and a thought leader. Karen, you're now a partner with KP Catalysts. KP stands for Knowledge to Power, where you've created a communication platform called Changing the Odds Remix. And that initiative really works to lift up five truths. Learning happens everywhere. Relationships and experiences drive development. All young people have potential. Opportunities are inequitable. And schools cannot do this alone. Karen, can you tell us more about this idea? How do you advance and act on these truths? The short answer is constantly and flexibly. You could take any five sentences and write them, but we work with those to get the sentences that have the most power. And we were intentional about writing one that was controversial. It says opportunities are inequitable. They're inequitable just because we need different opportunities. And if we are not being intentional about looking at equity, they're going to end up being inequitable. The last one, schools cannot do this alone, is both a platitude that everybody says, but we don't fully engage in the challenge of if schools cannot do this alone, if learning really does happen everywhere, then what do we do about the fact that we put an enormous amount of power and responsibility and accountability on an institution called schools in a way that has locked out other opportunities for learning? And so what we've been doing with Changing the Oz Remix is really talking about how we can dig in deeper into the ideas that people are already sharing. What is it that makes that idea work? And so the remix idea, whether we're remixing things from 20 or 30 years ago, like the work that David Weikert did, or we're remixing to come back into a podcast that I heard two weeks ago. So the first set of podcasts that we did really brought in exceptional educational leaders who have been developing networks for transforming schools, like EL Education and the Urban Assembly, the big picture approach folks. These are people who have just excelled at building school communities and school environments. We brought them in and said, you're doing this right, but we want to dig into the elements of what you're doing that are right. And we had to bring a young person with them onto the call. And we asked them two questions, how they're building community and how they're having young people work in community. And the answer with each was intentional, but different. And then we asked the young people, who beyond your teachers, even though your teachers are exceptional, 
who beyond your teachers is supporting your development? And that was the most telling question because it took a while for them to just think, we're so used to talking about teachers and administrators that the young people didn't even have the language for a minute to name who else was in their learning microcosm, microsystem that was important to them. But once they did, they got so excited. Karen, for more than two decades, you've championed this idea that we need to focus on changing the odds rather than just beating the odds. You talk about this on the Changing the Odds Remix website. You talk about it on your podcast. We write a bit about this in our book, too. We've all heard the stories about a student experiencing homelessness who gets into Harvard or a student who's growing up in poverty who has to raise all their siblings and, and help pay the rent and still manages to land a scholarship. And while all those students are certainly worth celebrating, we also need to ask why they're outliers. We need to ask why the odds against them are stacked so high that someone's overcoming them makes national news. Can you talk about how does the Changing the Odds Remix initiative go about supporting communities and changing those odds rather than just beating those odds? I'll say two things on that front. I've worked at the Children's Defense Fund, as you mentioned, for about nine years. And while I was at the end of my tenure there, Marianne Wright Edelman set up the Beating the Odds Awards. And they were exactly what you just said. You have four or five young people each year who were celebrated for the fact that they overcame enormous hurdles to get to where they were. And something just hit me as wrong with that. And I thought about my own life and that I came from DC, low income family, all that stuff, went to the DC public schools, but I didn't feel like people had selected me out personally to help me advance. I felt like I was with a sea of young people that were surrounded by adults who were moving us all forward. And that was going to the DC public schools. So it's not just that we don't wanna celebrate young people that have overcome odds. For me, the more important thing was we don't want adults to sit back on their laurels because they've helped some young people beat the odds. And if you look at any data that we have coming out of any of our systems, we're clearly not supporting the majority of young people, whether it's coming out of school, coming out of juvenile justice, coming out of child welfare, but we allow ourselves to accept incremental progress. For me, the idea of changing the odds is just putting this squarely back on the responsibility of adults to get much better at what they're doing and to look systemically at what's going on. In Changing the Odds Remix, what we're doing is very specifically talking to people who are changing the odds, who have that commitment, but digging in deeper to find out exactly how they're doing that. And we're connecting the personal stories or the specific stories with the general strategies. Storytelling is hugely important, but storytelling not connected to strategic storytelling gets people a feel-good example, but it doesn't help them understand how to change systems. And so what we're trying to do is to go both, is to give people a very rich, specific example of where this is happening, get them excited about it, and then dig in to find out why it's happening and then dig in to find out whether the things that people are doing, they're doing systemically to make sure that they're available for all young people. And that's sort of the remix model. So in this context of what you just described, we're in this moment when parents and educators in and out of school are asking, so where do we go from here? What do we want to do differently? What do we want to redesign, reimagine, remix? Karen, when you look at this field of thriving youth, this field that you helped to create what are the possibilities that excite you most? And what's most urgent as we move ahead? Disruption always creates opportunity. And the pandemic created a huge amount of disruption. 
And out of it came a huge amount of opportunity. Most specifically, when schools closed, out of school time became all the time. Organizations that are sort of in that second shift space, which we think of as after school and out of school, really were well positioned to build relationships that led to engagement and sustained engagement that then sustained learning. And when you think about pods and the fact that you had these pandemic pods forming around the country where parents were coming together, sometimes with a community organization, to figure out how to get their young people into relationships with each other and with an adult who could help them with learning, the study just came out on those pods. Parents were excited about the pods. They loved the level of engagement. They loved the access that they had to the teacher. They loved the flexibility. The teachers loved it. Everybody loved it. But when schools reopened, parents said, well, we've got to go back to school now, not just because it's required, but because we have set up this unfortunate dilemma that the excitement that happens in these more flexible learning environments is competing with the functionality of schools. And schools are where you know your kid can go five days a week, you know they can get breakfast, they can get lunch, they can get access to healthcare if they need it. This is where they go so that you can go on with your life. But studies after studies show that when you ask parents what they want their kids to learn, they give you a very rich, natural, integrated list of social, emotional, cognitive competencies and content knowledge. When they're asked what to call this stuff, they just call them life skills. When they're asked where this happens, parents are really quite clear that some of that learning happens in families, some of that learning happens in schools, and some of that learning happens in community organizations, not just in nebulous community, but in organizations that they have relationships with, that they pick and they help their young people be a part of. And they can differentiate between the types of skill growth that they expect to have in each of those settings. We have an opportunity to really listen to families, listen to parents, and not have them have to make this false choice between getting their kids really into exciting learner-centered engaging opportunities that they don't get credit for necessarily, but that's where learning is happening, or school. So I think what we have an opportunity to do is push hard on understanding the differences between schooling, as we traditionally think about it, learning, as we understand what learning is from the science, education, and in specific public education, as the commitment the country has made to making sure that all young people are prepared, and the concept of development, which basically is whether we like it or not, young people are engaging and are developing in lots of different ways that are integrated, and we need to be putting all this together. Karen, how can people find out more about the work you're doing? They can go to kpcatalyst.com on our website. If they want to zoom in directly on the remix, they can go to changingnowsremix.com. They can sign up for newsletters, and there's lots and lots of remix stuff that they can look at. Karen, before we go, just one more question. What's one thing that parents and educators can do today to make tomorrow a more promising place for every learner? I think parents can understand not just their importance as supporting learning and their importance in their young people's lives, but understand the unique perspective that they bring to what their child is learning, where their child is learning, and when their child is learning, and bring that specificity into conversations with schools and other public systems so that we don't just have parents coming in to say, how can I help the school do what the school defines as important? 
We have parents coming in to say, this is what we know is important and works for our kids. How can the schools help us? Thanks again to Karen Pittman, co-founder and past president of the Forum for Youth Investment and a partner with KP Catalyst, working to change the odds so that all children and all youth will thrive. Remaking Tomorrow is powered by Remake Learning. Learn more at remakelearning.org. Thank you.